this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. As hard as it is to believe, there was a moment where some people accused Jesus of working for the devil. And when that happened, he warned them of a much more serious concern that they should have. Had they just committed the unforgivable sin? Here's the big question. Have you committed the unforgivable sin? What even is the unforgivable sin? Let's see what Jesus has to say about it. So it's good to see you guys. Thanks for being here today. We're going to continue in our Mark study. We're studying the life of Jesus as represented by gospel writer Mark. And I got to thank Jeff Parker for preaching two weeks ago when I was out. Uh, he did a great job. I got to thank Stephen Mansell for preaching last Sunday. Didn't they both do a great job the last couple of weeks? trying to work my way out of a job a little bit. Um, so they did great, and they kept us right on course on our study. And uh, today we're going to kind of pick up. We're actually kind of backtrack a little bit, and we're going to catch a section uh, that they skipped over. I asked them to uh, because I wanted to do this section myself today. Uh, it's a real heavy topic. And so we're going we're gonna to get heavy with this. I hope you'll take some notes uh, today because this is going to be serious stuff. But before we look at what Mark says about Jesus, I want to look at a weird thing that John says in one of his epistles. He kind of writes 1 John, and right at the end of 1 John, he kind of drops a bomb on us. And then walks away. Like he just, he drops a bomb and then he just ends the letter kind of abruptly. And I want to look at what he says and hopefully it'll get us thinking. It's in 1 John 5. Uh, we'll be studying Mark today, but right now I want to look at 1 John 5. And he says this If anyone, that's me or you, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin, however, there is a sin, he says, that leads to death. There's a sin that leads to death. And then he kind of says another sentence or two about it, and then he just ends the letter. It's just really weird. He says there's a sin, an unpardonable sin, it leads to death, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. He doesn't describe it, he doesn't explain it, he's just like, there is a sin that leads to death. Oh, stay away from it, and goodbye. That's, that's kind of the way it goes. So it's this freaky, weird thing, and it freaks some Christians out a little bit. I've had people come to me with this and say, what is, what is this sin that leads to death? What is this unpardonable sin? You know, some people, I've, I've actually heard, they've said that the unpardonable sin is suicide. And some people say that the unpardonable sin is divorce. You know, I've heard people, you know, they, well, what is it? And, you know, they're, they're wondering about this unpardonable sin. And I know what they're really asking. Have I done it? <laughs> yeah, have I done it? In fact, what they're really asking is the first blank on your page today. It's, is it too late for me? Is it too late for me? Have I somehow committed the unpardonable sin? Because there is an unforgivable sin according to John. And even though John doesn't tell us what it is, I think he knows what he's talking about because I believe he was there that day in Capernaum when Jesus talked about it. 
As far as we can tell, there's only one time that Jesus ever spoke of this unpardonable sin. We find it in two Gospels, but it's one instance. And Jesus explains it. And so we're going to look at we're going to look at this series of events. There, there's something that triggers a series of events that causes Jesus to tell us about this unpardonable sin. And that's where we are in Mark today. So let's just look at the story. Let's just jump right on into it. Mark 3, verse 20 says this, Then he went home. Now we know Nazareth is his home. But in the Gospels, they regard Capernaum as Jesus' home, right? Because that's where his ministry headquarters were. I mean, he kind of based himself out of Capernaum. So he went home, actually, to Capernaum. And the crowd gathered again. Have we seen that before? Have we seen the crowd gather around Jesus in Mark? Over and over again, right? Every time Jesus shows up, everybody comes because they want to hear his teaching and they want to get the healings. They want to see the casting out of the demons. So he goes back home. The crowd gathers again. And it says the crowd gathered so that they could not even eat. What this means is that Jesus is so busy doing ministry. He's just so busy doing the ministry. He's healing. He's casting out. He's so busy that he doesn't even have time to stop and take a lunch break. You ever have days like that? You ever have days you're just so busy you just can't, you can't stop for a minute and you get home, you know, and you just kind of collapse? You, you know what that's like? All right, so there's three of you that work for a living. <laughs> so he's having this crazy time where he's just doing ministry, doing ministry. A lot of people think ministry jobs are easy. You only work one day a week. Uh, but here's Jesus working it, not even having time to eat. And then it goes on and it says this, when his family heard it, when they heard what he was doing, um, they went out to seize him. They went out to get him and pull him back inside for they were saying he's out of his mind. He's so busy, so crazy doing ministry. He's just literally out of his mind. Boy, I could unpack there, but I'm gonna move on uh, because Mark leaves out a lot of detail here, but <laughs> classic Mark, right? Leaves out the detail, just, he just moves on. But Matthew, Matthew gives us just enough detail to understand what's really going on. Matthew tells us this same story, but he adds this next section right here. We'll look at it in Matthew 12. He says this, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. And Jesus healed the man so that he could both speak and see. The crowd was amazed and asked, Could it be that Jesus is the son of David? the Messiah. So Jesus heals this man, this man who was blind, couldn't see, and now he can all of a sudden see and speak. So he heals this man, and it's amazing. It's amazing to the crowd. Have we seen the crowd be amazed in Mark? Okay, so two of you now. We've gone from three to two. Over and over again, we see in Mark that Jesus does stuff, and the crowd is astonished, amazed. You know, they're just awe-inspired by Jesus. And so here he's healed this guy, and they're amazed Again, And they asked the question, could it be? Could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? Now, I want you to see this part right here because this is huge. Now, we're looking in Matthew right here, but so far in Mark, nobody has asked this question. 
So far in Mark, no human being has connected these dots to see what Jesus is doing and to attribute it to God and ask the question, could he actually be the Messiah? No human has figured it out. The demons have, remember? The demons called him out, said, we know who you are. You're the son of God, the Messiah. And how does Jesus respond to the demons when they say that? Huh? Just shut it, shut it. Don't tell anybody, get out, right? Jesus wants to shut that talk down for whatever reason at this point in his ministry, but now people are starting to ask the question. People are starting to see Jesus for who he really is. There's a shift of mentality about Jesus that is striking. Something's going on here. It's such a huge shift that we'll skip back into Mark and we'll see what happens right after that in verse 22 of Mark 3. It says that the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's not the Messiah. He doesn't work for God. Uh uh. You're getting this all wrong. He's possessed by Beelzebub. And they said, By the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. So here's the people saying, could he really be the Messiah? And the scribes, now you gotta understand the scribes, they are experts in the law. They're actually expert at reading and writing and translating and interpreting the law. Okay, so these are experts. You might say that these are the, like the research assistants for the Pharisees. Okay, so the Pharisees, they're the top dogs, and the scribes are right under them, and the scribes are the ones with all the head knowledge, man. They know all the ins and outs, all the these and thous. They know all the I, I dots and all the T crosses. They, they know all the everything about the law. They know it backwards, forwards. They know all the stuff. They're experts in the law. They know their doctrines. They know prophecy. They know the scripture backwards and forwards. And apparently they were sent from Jerusalem by Pharisees. The Pharisees sent these guys down to Capernaum and said, look, there's a lot of talk about this Jesus dude and a lot of stirring up going on. People are, people are asking questions and we think they're asking the wrong questions. So you scribes, you go down to Capernaum and you check it out. You, you check out Jesus and you see if he's legit from God or not and you come back and report to us. And so these scribes, they, they came down from Jerusalem and they immediately responded, right? They immediately responded. First of, all, first of all, they looked at him and they said, he doesn't work for God, he works for Beelzebub. What he's doing is not good. They, they, they consulted with each other and they voted and they decided that what he's doing is not good. What Jesus is doing right now, this is not good. He's from Beelzebul or Beelzebub. So who is, who is Beelzebub? Uh, You find him in the Old Testament. He's identified there. Uh, He is a powerful, evil agent of Satan. Or he can even be identified as Satan himself. The word Beelzebub or Beelzebul comes from two words. Hebrew words, Baal, meaning God or Lord, and Zebub, meaning flies. So his name literally is Lord of the Flies. He's from the Lord of the Flies. That sounds like a great title. I'm the Lord of all the flies. Oh, yeah, well, I control all the mosquitoes, you know. But, but when they're saying Lord of the Flies, they're not just talking about flies. Where do you see flies swarming around? Huh? 
death, decay, decomposition, dookie. Right? I mean, you see it all around the nastiest, grossest, smelliest stuff that you don't want to, you don't just not want to touch it, you don't want to get near it. So Beelzebub is associated with death and decay, nastiness, horrible, has a stench to it. He's the Lord of the flies. And what the scribes are saying here is that Jesus works for that guy. Jesus works for Satan. Make sure you understand what they're saying. They're identifying Jesus as being satanic. They're saying that Jesus is not good. So Jesus got to respond to this, right? I mean, he can't let this one go. This is a big allegation against him, maybe the biggest one yet. And so he's got to respond. And so he literally calls him to himself. He's like, you come here, come here, come here. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're saying. And in Mark 3, 23, he says this to him. He says to them, talking in parables. By the way, by the way, Mark says he talks in parables. You're gonna, you're gonna see what he says. I don't think he's talking in parables. I think he's using basic logic. Here's what he says. He says this to him. How can Satan cast out Satan? How, how can Satan, that doesn't make any sense. He says, if a kingdom is divided against, himself, against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. How can Satan cast out Satan? Likewise, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. You see, I don't think it's a parable. I think Jesus is using basic logic with these guys. He's saying, what you're saying makes no sense. What you're saying holds no water. It's illogical. I don't even know why you're talking this way. Duh, everybody can figure it out. You know, a kingdom crumbles, a house crumbles, and everybody suffers. But that's not what's going on here. It's not, it's not disaster happening. There is something good happening here. Why can't you see it? Why can't you understand it? Why you got to call the good not good? Why you got to label it the wrong thing? Doesn't take a genius to see that your argument makes no sense. Jesus is saying he's clearly not of Satan's kingdom. He's not of Satan's house. And he does not answer to Satan. In fact, here's what he says next. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house I think this ties directly to the parable that Jesus told about the demons who occupied the house and were cast out and the, clean, the house gets clean everybody's happy until the demon gets tired of wandering and then he comes back sevenfold to reoccupy the house that's what he's talking about Jesus is saying that the enemy has occupied the house and what Jesus is saying is I'm not of the enemy I've come into the house where the enemy occupies I have bound the strong man and I'm the one plundering I'm taking back all the things that rightfully belong to my father that's what he's saying is he saying i am the plunderer Woo! that's big news i'd think somebody would be excited about that on a sunday morning jesus is the plunderer what he's saying is what i'm doing 
is always and only good. You hear me? Uh, what I'm doing is always and only good. Do, do you believe that? Do you believe that what Jesus does is always and only good in your life? Do you believe that his desire for you is good? Do you believe his plan for your life is good? That's why you gave your life to him in the first place, right? Because you experienced not good. And you saw that what he had for you was different. It was the opposite. He, he wanted good for you in your life, and so you gave your life to him. And that's why you're sitting here today barely acknowledging what I'm saying. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> so it's next when Jesus makes this chilling statement. Now, if you're going to get quiet, this might be the time to get quiet. Clearly, you're advanced students, and you've already started on that project. <laughs> because he says something really heavy here when he's talking to the scribes and to us. Here's what he says in verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven for the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they other. It'll all be forgiven, but, but, he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. So here it is. Jesus defines the unpardonable sin for us. I'm going to ask you, okay? I'm going to want you to answer. What is the unpardonable sin? Good. Good job. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So this is heavy, and I need a few minutes to unpack this because there's a lot in this. The unpardonable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Is it too late for me? Have I committed this sin? Let's unpack this a little bit. You see, first of all, we as Christians, we believe that every sin leads to death. We believe that every single sin that you and I ever commit leads to death because we believe that God created a beautiful, good world. Everything he did here in his creative work was good. He said so himself over and over and over again. At the end of every day during creation, he was saying, it's good, it's good, it's good. And we believe he created you and me in his image to look like him, sound like him, think like him, represent him. He made you to be good. He was so happy because everything in all of creation pointed to him, looked like him, and came under his authority. We believe that God made it to where he and Adam and Eve could walk in the garden together. But then Adam and Eve chose to do something not good. We chose to rebel against God. We chose to agree with the accuser of God that he's not really worthy of being God. And we chose to break his beautiful creation. And that's what sin is. Every act of sin is a loud, screaming cry that God isn't worthy of being God. Every time you lie, every time you, every time you cheat, every time you hurt someone, every time you break a relationship... Every single one of those is a loud cry, God isn't worthy of being God. I'm going to live my life the way I want to, and it ends up being not good. And this angers God because he made it all good. 
He made it all perfect. And every time we sin, it breaks it a little bit more. And so God is angry at this, and he will punish sin. The Bible says, the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that God punishes every sin. He's a just God, right? What this means is there is no sin that God is okay with. You hear me? I know we think, well, I, you know, I'm, I don't sin as bad as this guy over here. It's just a little sin. It's not a big deal. There is no sin that God is okay with. Every sin is a crime against the character and nature of God himself. And so the wages of sin is death. All sin leads to death. That's what we believe as Christians. But we also believe in John 3.16. You know what it says. I'll show it right here. It says this, that this is how God loved the world, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So all sin leads to death. We're all under the judgment of death, all of us. But if we believe in him, that doesn't just mean I believe he existed. It means I believe that what he did here was good. He came here and he lived a perfect life. He had no sin of his own to pay for. And so he goes to the cross and on the cross, God took all of my not good, all the not good in me, and he put it onto Jesus on the cross. And Jesus goes to the grave paying the price for my sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus did it. He died for me, took my sin to the grave, and then three days later, he walked away from it. And now he lives to bring his good to you and to me. Am I right? Amen. That's what he does. He brings his good to me and to you. That's why we also believe in John 3, 36. It says this, anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Now look at this. This draws a distinction. If you believe in God's son, you have eternal life. But anyone who doesn't obey the son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. So I think we can learn a lot of theology right here, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of salvation theology right here. If you believe, and I would say, and obey the Son, you have eternal life. But if you don't believe and obey, then you will never experience life. There are two different types of people, those who are pardoned and those who are unpardoned. Do you know pardoned people? Do you know any pardoned people? I hope you're sitting amongst a bunch of them who are very excited to be pardoned, apparently, this morning. Do you know unpardoned people? There's lots of them. Your family members, your neighbors. Do we love them? Do we pray for them? Do we share our faith with them? Yes. So clearly scripture teaches that there's two types of people and the distinction is whether or not you believe and obey the Son of God, whether or not you have a relationship with the Son of God. Yet Jesus says that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unpardonable sin. Did he not read John 3, 16? Did he not have his salvation theology set right? Because now he's telling us that there's also an unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about it. Let's unpack it. So first of all, you got to understand what blasphemy 
is, and if you're going to understand what blasphemy is, you've got to understand something about the name of God in the first place. Because all through the Old Testament, when it talks about blasphemy, it talks about it in conjunction with the name of God. So let's talk about it. Next blank on your page is this. God's name is holy and has a holy purpose. His name is holy. It's set apart. It's not like my name, and it's not like your name. You know, it's not like Steve or Bob or Jim or Phil. You know, it's not, it's not just a plain old name. His name is set apart holy, and it has a holy purpose, right? His name accomplishes things, right? In Exodus 3, God says to Moses, as he's sending Moses to rescue his people, he says, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has sent me to you. Yahweh, this is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. It's by the name of God, Yahweh, that the people of Israel were delivered out of Egypt. And that's not the only thing. I mean, there's a long list. I got a list. It's through his name that God promises us salvation and deliverance. It's through his name that God reveals his character and his nature. It's through his name that he gives miraculous signs and wonders. It's through his name that he establishes his covenant with his people. His name is above every other name. His name is holy. And we worship him because of his name. Right? This is a big deal. That's why the third commandment in Exodus 20 is this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's huge. We don't take his name in vain. We don't misuse his name. When we misuse his name, we are committing blasphemy because his name is holy and has a holy purpose. Next blank on your page, blasphemy is to use in vain or to reassign purpose. It's to use in vain or to reassign purpose. Let me unpack that a little bit more. But let me start by asking the question, why is Jesus talking about blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Because the scribes, they weren't even talking about the Holy Spirit. They didn't even believe in the Holy Spirit the way we do today. So they weren't talking about, the, they were trash talking Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. So why is Jesus all of a sudden now talking about the Holy Spirit? And not only that, but is he elevating the Holy Spirit above himself and above his Father? Because he says, you know, he literally says, you can blaspheme me, you can blaspheme the Father, but don't even think about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Why this focus on the Holy Spirit all of a sudden when that's not what they were talking about? Think about it for just a second. When God is at work in the world today, including in my life and in your life, what is he working through? The Holy Spirit, right? He's working through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about it. Is God the Father, Yahweh himself, is he walking among us right now? No, he's reigning on high. Is Jesus himself walking among us right now? No, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We know this. It's in the Bible. 
So who is it that's walking among us, speaking, convicting, revealing, and uh, ministering? Who is it? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that we engage with uh, as God's presence here in this world. In fact, the next blank on your page, the Holy Spirit is the active agent of God. Wayne Grudem says it this way in his book. This is kind of a long paragraph, but bear with me. I like what he says. He says, the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. He's saying that the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity whom the Scripture most often represents as being present to do God's work in the world. Although this is true to some extent throughout the Bible, it is particularly true in the New Covenant age. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was many times manifested in the glory of God and in theophanies. And in the Gospels, Jesus himself manifested the presence of God among men. But after Jesus ascended into heaven and continuing through the entire church age, the Holy Spirit is now the primary manifestation of the presence of the Trinity among us. He is the one who is most prominently present with us now. So it's the Holy Spirit that is speaking, that is praying that is revealing, that is convicting. It's the Holy Spirit that calls you to repentance. It's the Holy Spirit, let me say it again, it's the Holy Spirit that calls you to repentance. Listen, you can't get saved without the Holy Spirit. I can't save you, right? I mean, I can, I can beg and plead with you. I can lay it all out there and hopefully get you to acknowledge it in your head, but it's the Holy Spirit that pulls at your heart and pulls you to himself. It's the Holy Spirit that draws you in. You can't even make a spiritual decision without the Holy Spirit. All you and I in our flesh can do is not good. But it's the Spirit that empowers us and gives us the ability to do anything that is eternally good. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me so far or am I putting you to sleep? Good? Okay, good. All right. So it's the Holy Spirit that does this work in us. And the scribes saw this happening with Jesus. Jesus ministered, he healed, he cast out in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he did. I mean, you see it happening all the time in Scripture. You see in the Gospels, there are times when Jesus is described as filled with the Spirit. And then he has these powerful, impacting teachings, or he does these amazing miracles. There's also times when you see that Jesus is not as full of the Spirit. For instance, when he goes home to Nazareth, and nobody believes in him, and the Spirit is not working, and so it says Jesus could not do any miracles there. It's the Spirit that makes those things possible. And so the scribes saw the Spirit at work in and through Jesus, and they labeled it satanic. They said it was not good. This is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is attributing to Satan what belongs to God. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when you look at the work of God, you hear the voice of God, and you say it is not 
good. That belongs to Satan. This, Jesus says, is unforgivable. Right? He says it right there in Mark. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And it is an unpardonable sin. So, when a lost person who doesn't have Christ is convicted by the Holy Spirit of sin and the Spirit says come home come to life come to me surrender your life to me and that person says I hear you but it's not good not good for me I know better I'm not giving in I'm going to keep living my life the way I want to live it and when you resist the Holy Spirit then you die unpardoned. You die apart from him and your destination is death, eternal death, separation from God. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So what that means, what that means is that if you're a Christian and you've heard the Holy Spirit, you've repented of your sin and now you're a Christ follower, then you don't have to worry about this sin right maybe maybe I'm going to say maybe because think about it think about the world that you and I live in think about the air we breathe here every single day what kind of world is this I'm going to argue that it's a world of blasphemy Jeff Parker had a great point a couple of weeks ago when he preached he talked about the website of uh, Eric Carnell He's a graphic designer, and he partnered with Target to market trans clothing to children. And he talked about how Eric Carnell um, believes that Satan is love. I was like, that, can't, that really can't be true. I looked up his pretty rainbow and pink website this week, and I copy-pasted a quote from him into my notes. Here's what Eric Carnell says. He says, for me, Satan is hope compassion, equality, and love. So naturally, Satan respects pronouns, and Satan loves all LGBT plus people. Eric Carnell says, Satan is love. Men and women, this is blasphemy. Because you and I know that God is love. And Satan is the opposite. But he is taking what is God's and attributing it to Satan. This is what we've done in America. This is America today. It's not just this one guy. We have become great at calling good evil and evil good. Right? I mean, you watch today and there are millions of people marching for the right to murder babies saying that is good. Right, you watch today, and with this whole LGBTQ thing, you wanna, you got a kid who comes to you, and Sean comes to you, and he's a young, young teenager, and he says, Dad, Mom, I think I'm a girl. And the world says to you, well, look at the kid. He's a boy. He's got boy DNA. He's got boy everything about him. He's all boy, but now he's saying he's a girl. Well, you need to practice gender-affirming care to your child. And gender affirming means actually denying who they really are so that they feel better about themselves in their confusion. 
we get it backwards. We get it so backwards and so opposite. Eric Carnell says that uh, Satan represents the true love for the LGBTQ people uh, as opposed to the hatred that Christians actually have for them. Let me ask you the question, do we hate the gay and trans neighbors that we have? Do we hate the gay and trans relatives we have? No, of course. That's ridiculous. God is love. And if we belong to him, then we are people of love, and we love everybody. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Why does it seem like, why does it seem like some Christians hate LGBTQ people? Why does it seem that way? I'll tell you. Here's why. Because we love them. We just happen to love God more right? He's the one that we love the most, and we actually believe that God created every single human being lovingly in his own image. He created you and me and everyone you've ever met to look like him. He expresses himself through his beautiful creation of each individual. We love that, but I tell you, it hurts when we see that beautiful creation disfigured and distorted and misrepresented, when they accuse God of making a mistake and putting a female in a male's body or vice versa, and we see the one that we love the most hurt by their denial of God's beautiful creation. That hurts us. And what happens is sometimes when you're hurt, you act out in bad ways. Right? And we Christians have been guilty at times of acting out in bad ways. It's not because we hate, it's because we're hurt. We're hurt by this because we want to continue to see God make that person become everything that He wants them to be, yet they seem to be all intent on disfiguring and distorting what God's made and destroying their own lives in the process. We don't believe that you, that God put a male in a female's body or vice versa. That's, you know, wanting your gender your way, that's loving yourself more than loving God. We call that idol worship, and we don't fall for idol worship. We don't defy the work of God, and we sure don't attribute love to Satan. We want to find the image of God in everyone around us, it's about saying we love you and we believe God created you uniquely special and we want to pull out his great glory in their lives instead of obscuring it with all this gender disaster. Have I talked enough about this yet? So, you know, it's easy to, it's easy to point the finger at someone else. But let me just ask the question, Christians. How do you and I respond when the Holy Spirit speaks into our lives? How do we respond when the Spirit is moving in us? When He calls you and me to repent of your pornography habits, how do you respond? When He calls you and me to, to give above and beyond what I've been given, how do I respond? When he calls me to serve in children's ministry, even though it might make me uncomfortable, how do I respond? 
When the Spirit calls me to turn the other cheek and to seek reconciliation rather than revenge, how do I respond? Let me ask you, Christian, I'm just going to ask you, are you really a Christ follower obeying Jesus and obeying the Holy Spirit, or are you walking dangerously close to the line of being a blasphemer? What would God do in our lives? if we actually felt that his name was above the name of pornography? What would he do in our lives if we actually felt like his name was above the name revenge? If his name was above the name addiction? If his name was above the name money? What would he do in our lives if we actually lived in such a way that we heard his voice and said, yes, no matter what? What could he possibly do in us? Don't you want that? Don't you want what he wants in your life? Don't you believe that his desire for you is always and only good? Don't you want to surrender to whatever it is he has for you? Because you know what he does? He turns mourning into dancing. He gives beauty for ashes. He turns shame into glory, and he turns graves into gardens. He's the only one who can. Last blank on your page. Nothing is better than him.